BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So we'll be joined shortly by Oren Cass. He's the executive director of a wonderful two and a half year old group named American Compass. So we're really excited to bring on Oren and talk about center-right economic policy. We'll get a little wonky into the public policy debates and all of that. But speaking of the current public policy debates, let's talk about this student loan, quote-unquote, forgiveness package right out of the gate here. So in case you've been asleep at the wheel over the past week, the Biden administration has announced its intention to, quote-unquote, forgive up to at least $300 billion, according to the Warden School Business's estimates, in student loans. So this is basically $10,000 in student loans for individuals making up to $125,000 a year. The point here from kind of an Econ 101 standpoint is that, you know, that money goes somewhere. So the way this works to break it down is the university gets the money, right? So the student takes out the loan, the university gets the money. That's why tuition spikes have been happening as precipitously and gratuitously as they have for the past X number of decades there. The student gets the loan from the federal taxpayer, the federal government over the past few decades in truly egregious, short-sighted, myopic fashion has gotten a near monopoly on the student loan market and undoing the damage that that, monopoli- that that monopolization has done is certainly one of the most important things that we have to be doing going forward there. So again, that $10,000 per borrower, it's not, it's not like you just snap your fingers and it goes away. That's not how it works. That's not how money, finance, economics, any of this works. That money has to go somewhere. The federal government is still on the hook for it. And, you know, we all know the various ways for the federal government to appropriate more money. They can raise taxes, they can cut spending, or most likely, as the government has done for the past number of decades, they'll just take out more debt, most likely more debt from who else but our arch geopolitical foe, the People's Republic of China. And what that means is that the median American is going to be cross-subsidizing those student loans. That's the way that any appropriation of spending works, by the way. I mean, it's, this, is not, this is not a unique mode or paradigm of public policy analysis to the student loan debate. You could take this exact same thing and apply it to the 55, 60, 70 billion, whatever the hell we're sending now to fight Vladimir Zelensky's war in Ukraine, the exact same thing applies. It's just particularly egregious here from a moral and basic fairness perspective. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that the median American who didn't necessarily take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, who didn't go to some second, third tier liberal arts college to major in gender studies or lesbian dance theory, whatever the hell some 18-year-old floofcake thought was a good idea to major in. No, the idea here is that the plumber, the electricians, those who may, those who even made more prudent college-related decisions, those who went to a less prestigious school because maybe they got a more, a, 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 a 
a nicer, some bigger scholarship there. Everyone who made a prudent, thrifty, and wise decision is going to be penalized. I think the rough estimate that I've seen is that the median American is now going to be on the hook for roughly $2,000 to kind of effectuate this cross-subsidization exercise. That $2,000, again, will come in the form of either more taxes, more debt, or something along those lines. What you have then, what you have is a Democratic Party that is effectively engaging in a reverse Robin Hood exercise on a mass national scale. Truly reverse Robin Hood. They are literally taking $2,000, roughly speaking, per head from the proverbial or literal electrician in states like Missouri, Arkansas, to cross-subsidize $10,000 in student loans for college grads majoring in stupid studies in the in Los Angeles and New York, literally subsidizing Harvard Law and Yale Law grads, as the case may be. Really, really, really crazy stuff. They're purporting to do it over executive order. The legality of this is flimsy, you might say. I, I, I know certain Republican attorneys general are looking into filing a lawsuit. So we'll see where that goes there. I want to touch on one other subject here before we bring on Oren. So this past week on Friday, we saw the the unsealing of a heavily redacted affidavit, of course. So this was the affidavit that was used to effectuate the FBI's unprecedented pre-dawn raid at Mar-a-Lago a few weeks ago that we had on Jack Posobiec to talk about on this particular podcast there. The affidavit is very heavily redacted, which of course raises the obvious question as to why this thing is being released in the first in the in the first place there. None of the underlying facts have changed. Really nothing that we have said in this podcast for the past few weeks with, with respect to the Mar-a-Lago raid have changed. It remains the case that as recently as June, as recently as four months ago, Trump's legal team was fully complying with the National Archives and their request for more documents. Moreover, moreover, the key legal point here from an Article II U.S. Constitution perspective, again, is that Donald Trump, whether you love him, hate him, or, you know, I guess maybe you could be milk toast. not a whole lot of people don't feel strong about him, whatever your thoughts on him are, he was the president of the United States. He was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces. And what that means, to cite the 1980s Supreme Court case, Department of the Navy versus Egan, is that he had plenary authority to declassify whatever documents he wants. And moreover, whatever statutory or regulatory authority purported to exist pertaining to declassification decisions is constitutionally void as it applies to the president because he has inherent constitutional authority to declassify whatever he wants. So none of these lines of analysis are at all harmed by anything that I have seen so far on the affidavit. It remains a, a real crossing of the Rubicon moments, this pre-dawn raid on an arch geopolitical foe. Very difficult, frankly, in many ways to see us recovering from this true travesty of justice anytime soon. I have to think that they are ultimately going to find some way to indict Donald Trump, whether it comes from the Mar-a-Lago documents, whether it comes from the January 6th Select Committee. The key point to remember here is that none of this is about the documents. None of this is about January 6th. It's just about getting Trump. That's it. And I say someone, by the way, who is now on record as supporting Ron DeSantis as the next president of the United States. But all of this is about, Ed, a ridiculous 
ridiculous desire to harm Trump to harm Trump at any and all costs. It's disgusting, and I do not think ultimately it is going to work. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. On the other side, we're going to bring on the great Orin Cass. Stay with us. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thrilled to be joined this week by the great Oren Cass. Oren is the executive director of American Compass, a group that I've been thrilled to be associated with since pretty much near the beginning. So Oren, thanks so much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. For those who are less plugged into kind of the wonky right of center, especially economic policy space, what is American Compass? And the natural corollary to that is what niche and void are you trying to fill that was previously unfilled? Yeah, I guess the way I would describe what we're doing is is we're essentially trying to do the work to to develop a conservative economic agenda that supplants the kind of blind faith in in free markets that has characterized the right of center for a long time um, with something that that I would argue is more genuinely conservative and and really focuses on the interests of of workers, their families and communities, and and ultimately the the nation. Um, and so I think, you know, as as is wound up in that description, it, it sort of invites a question, well, well, what is conservative at the end of the day? What it, it, I thought conservative economics was, you know, tax cuts and free trade and deregulation. Uh, and and my view anyway is that there isn't necessarily anything conservative about any of those things. There, there are times when those might be very sensible policies to pursue, uh, but they have to be pursued toward an, an end. Um, and and I think for conservatives in particular, the focus has to be on, uh, you know, especially we're talking about economics. It, it has to be on on a, an economy that's actually providing opportunities for people to build decent lives in the communities where they live, support their families, uh, you know, ultimately be building the productive capacity of the nation and making sure we're not just going deeper into debt. Uh, and so, you know, a policy agenda that's going to do those things is certainly given today's challenge is going to have to be very different than one that's that's just suggesting yet another tax cut. So one thing that I find so fascinating about you is given, for lack of a better description, a, a you know, a more nationalist. I personally don't really like the word populist, but a slightly more kind of populist approach to economics. You know, you had a fairly high ranking position on the 2012 Mitt Romney campaign. These are not necessarily the words I think a lot of people kind of associate with with Mitt Romney. So were you did you have those views back then or was that kind of like an intellectual tension at times during the campaign? I'm, I'm kind of curious how that played itself out. Yeah, I mean, my own views have definitely sort of, I'd say, firmed up over time. You know, when I had the opportunity to work for for then Governor Romney, um, it, it was really the my first sort of foray in into the the world of public policy, and, and so was learning a lot as I was going along. And certainly was was very supportive of him and his campaign. I think he would have been a wonderful president. Um, 
But something that was especially eye-opening for me on the campaign was when we first took on the issue of trade. And, you know, a lot of folks forget that that all of the things that that Donald Trump ultimately said about China and, and kind of is seen as having really broken with, with Republican orthodoxy on trade, Mitt Romney actually said all of those things, maybe in slightly different words, but but made all the same arguments in, in 2012 about the way that the trading system was broken, that trade with China was not free trade at all, that we needed to be confronting them and, and ultimately changing that relationship because it was not to America's benefit uh, up to and including imposing tariffs. And so for me, it was just an, an incredibly important learning experience to, you know, that that came from him. That wasn't some advisor saying, hey, this would play well in an ad. That was him saying the, 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 the free market orthodoxy is just wrong here. We need to have more to say than that. And I sort of got sent off to, to figure out, well, what's the best thinking on that? What, what else is there to say on it? And what I found, at least on the right of center, was that there was essentially none. Um, there, right. there was this one trade law. There, there was this one trade lawyer named Bob Lighthizer, who, <laughs> who sort of seemed to know what he was talking about. Um, but but other than that, you really just ran into you know economist after economist, and what I would describe more as ideologue after ideologue, who just say that's ridiculous. Free trade is always beneficial, and anything you do to interfere with that is just hurting yourself. And so, you know, studying that issue in particular, I think made me realize both that the the thinking that needs to be done about economic policy is a lot more complex than just free markets uh and that also there's just a huge problem with with what had become right of center orthodoxy on the issue which it's frankly not even clear where it came from i mean you go back like people think they're just you know carrying forward ronald reagan's tradition but this isn't what Ronald Reagan thought at all. I mean, Reagan went to war with the Japanese. Henry Olson wrote a whole term. book on this, didn't he? Henry Olson wrote a, a fantastic book on this. We have some some research coming out of American Compass soon on on the um, you know Japanese auto industry in particular. I mean, the reason we have all those Japanese automakers in the American South is because Ronald Reagan basically said, "We're, we're not going to allow you to flood our market with imports anymore." And so. Uh, you know, I think there's a very interesting intellectual history to be written of how we got to this point where people thought on the right of center, you were just supposed to say, oh, free trade, always good, more free trade, always better. Um, but it's it's clearly something that that needed to be unwound that that I think President Trump did an important um, job of of disrupting. Um, but but we're still left with the question then of okay well well what comes next if, free, if you know free markets have have incredible powers and and are obviously the the right starting point for organizing um, an economy um, but but that can't be the end of the discussion and and conservatives need to have a lot more to say about it than that so I, I want to get into public policy you know we've got semiconductors student loans family policy all sorts of good stuff that your organization is putting out such terrific content on but I want to take the how do we get to this point just a little bit further here um, you know you're better positioned than you know basically anyone out there you and Julius crying to kind of like do the intellectual work to kind of see how we how we did get to this point it's, it's frankly a question that that I ask myself a lot I've even kind of toyed with the idea of kind of doing like a long research style paper on it myself so I j j just talk us through a little bit more how did this happen I mean how did we kind of get to this idea at least you know I'm 33 years old at least when I was kind of coming of age in the right of center firmament that you know, tax cuts, deregulation, free trade, absolutism, even kind of open borders. Frankly, from an immigration context, these are kind of undiluted goods unto themselves. Like, how did we arrive there? 
Well, I'll, I'll give you my theory of it anyway, um, which is I think a lot of it goes back to the work of, of Friedrich Hayek and, and Milton Friedman, um, who, who were both excellent economists, um, but but they sort of represent a, a fascinating truth about economic economics as a discipline, which is that it, it sort of pretends to be a science discovering permanent truths, but in, in fact, it's, it, it is people describing the world around them. And so it's really interesting to sort of follow the history of economics going all the way back to Adam Smith, who was kind of, you know, writing at a time when you had this British empire opening up and, and obviously, you know, benefiting tremendously from trade and trying to explain like, no, no, guys, here, here is why trade works really well for us, right? And, and then you have a guy like Karl Marx writing at exactly the point in the Industrial Revolution where the Industrial Revolution was not working out for the working class at all. Living standards were down, life expectancy was down and pointing out the various ways this this economic system was was not working out for workers and you know you have you have Schumpeter writing you know during this period of extraordinary technological in- innovation at the beginning of the 20th century you have Keynes coming up and sort of you know really as he would be the first to say changing his mind about all sorts of things as he actually observes the great depression and tries to understand what is happening and I think that all builds to what Friedman and Hayek were doing in, in sort of the 50s and 60s, which was a period of time when it really looked like free markets just worked and delivered amazing prosperity. And the more trade, the better. And, you know, I like to cite, you know, Hayek has this fascinating essay in 1960 called Why I Am Not a Conservative, right? where he takes conservatives to task for basically being skeptical of markets just solving everything on their own. And and he specifically sort of celebrates what he calls the self-regulating market and says, like, we don't understand why it works, but it it does. And you just have to have faith in it. And and then specifically as his illustration of how wonderfully the self-regulating market works, he uses the example that exports and imports just naturally come into balance. Um, and he was writing at exactly the middle of a two-decade period where American exports and imports happened to be pretty much perfectly in balance. Um, and so as a descriptive matter, Friedman and Hayek did a, an incredible job documenting here are the reasons some of these things are happening. But they were not discovering permanent truths that would equally hold if you, say, had the rise of China over the next 40 years, if you had all sorts of developments that have happened in the real world. And yet what a lot of folks on the right of center did, I think just because it was, it, it sort of confirmed their priors, as we say these days, and provided an explanation for why less government was better. Um, they basically picked up these theories and took them to be kind of eternal truths. Um, and so, you know, whereas someone like Reagan was was making policy for 1980. How do we address the problems of the 1970s? You then had this this whole wave of folks come along in, in the think tank community, um, pundits, you know, Wall Street Journal op-ed page and so forth, supported by a business community that, of course, loved this way of thinking as well, uh, because those truths do hold for the business community. <laughs> More free trade is, in fact, awesome for multinational corporation profits. Um, at least until you're an, an Intel or a Boeing or a GE and you, you drive yourself into the ground. But, um, you know, rationally self-interested corporate executives love this stuff. Um, and, and so there was just sort of this entire intellectual architecture 
built on what was a sort of extremely uh, weak and inflexible foundation. Well, let's take it to a quick commercial break. Let's get into some public policy on the other side of this. We're with Orrin Cass. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Or with that kind of intellectual setting of the table under us, let's kind of dive into some public policy debates here. So student loans is definitely top of mind right now. You had a piece in Politico magazine just this past week here. Talk about your approach, given what we just said, kind of this kind of, you know, more practical, empirical mentality for the student loan debate. And your organization has done fantastic research on education and kind of getting us out of this rut in general here. Where did the Biden administration go long, go wrong? And what should they do differently? Well, you know, I think student loans is a great illustration of, of the fact that there are plenty of things that that the right of center is still correct about, right? I, <laughs> I'm not here. I'm not here to say that if if, if Republicans say X, you know, they, they must be wrong about it. The the straightforward critique of of student loan forgiveness as just an, an absurd handout to the wrong group of people, um, particularly when you don't even pair it with any sort of reform of the underlying system to, to do anything anything to prevent this all from just happening again uh, is just is just extraordinarily bad and, and cynical policy. Um, so so I think that's that, that is absolutely right. I think where you know we would want to to add a little bit more to the the picture perhaps is to say, you know all that being said, the the correct response isn't just to say, well, we should just have government out of the education game. Right. It's I think we we need to aggressively cut subsidies to higher education, which are um, certainly wasteful and, and in fact, compounding a lot of problems. Um, but but that's not just a, a, a money saving opportunity. There, there is a lot that we do need to do if we want our economy to function well when it comes to actually equipping um, workers and, and young people in particular with skills to succeed in, in the labor market and be productive and, and, and support families. And this, again, is a great illustration of a place where, like, real economics doesn't disagree, right? The, the kind of, well, if we just had to get government out of this altogether, then the free market will solve for this is just untrue. Um, the free market does not have any particular interest in investing in improving people's skills especially if what you want the outcome of that to be is that you then pay people commensurate with their skills, right? If, if you tell companies, hey, please invest in training these workers so that they become more productive and you earn more profit off their productivity, yeah, they'll do that where that makes sense. If you say, hey, please train these workers so that they'll be more productive so that you pay them more, <laughs> that that, that there isn't really a, a a profit case for that. And so, you know, the free market crowd might say, well, this is just for the individuals then, right? We need some sort of wonderful private financing market in, in which your, you know, typical 
uh, young person as they graduate from high school is going to find some financing in the market to figure out what training they need to then go, yeah, you can kind of, like you said, come up with this abstract story that sounds like it might work in theory. That is just not how the world works or what is going to happen to to real people. And so we absolutely need um, a, a public role and, and it is a public investment that pays huge public returns for our society um, in preparing people for the workforce, in connecting them with jobs, um, in getting them started in good careers. And I think the key thing to, to recognize in all this is that what's wrong with our thinking about funding higher education isn't the idea that this is important and we should be funding it. It's our assumption that a college campus is somehow the right place for everybody. And there are some people for who it is, but the reality is that for most people, it's not. And in fact, the right institution that's going to be able to do those things that I just described is an employer. And so we need to get comfortable with a, a closer nexus of, of financing and, and regulation and so forth that actually brings government, education system, and employers together in ways that gets employers doing the training, but using public funds to do it. Because at the end of the day, it's the workers who we want to to gain the benefits. Yeah, it seems to me that the original sin, so to speak, of our higher education problem is just kind of this this cultural emphasis that a f- traditional four year degree granting institution is kind of a rite of passage in kind of in, in American culture that you have to, you know, the the colorful description that, that I think I've used in the past is this. You know this four-year rum springa for the you know the well-heeled ch- <laughs> children of elites that you have to go there to this bacchanalia and then therefore you're like a proper adult. So you know the question is how much work in public policy do I think to kind of unwind what has clearly been an erroneous kind of cultural emphasis on on higher education as kind of a rite of passage as an end unto itself. But you know your your organization has done a lot of work on this, I think, on kind of tweaking public policy to kind of rechannel a lot of this kind of younger 17, 18 year old town. So tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I, I think you framed it exactly right. The the term I like to use is is amusement park entitlement. <laughs> um, because you know something that struck me as as I've spoken in public about this issue is is I think there's there's a misconception that like the problem is guidance counselors who tell everybody that they should go to college and, and parents would come up to me and say, uh, you know, that's not quite right. You know, we know in a lot of cases that college doesn't make sense. Teachers, guidance counselors, they're not idiots. They know this too, but try telling my 17 year old daughter, she doesn't get to go to college next year. Um, and you know, when I said earlier that, part of the problem is it's not just that the money is is wasted, it's that it actually, it, it creates problems. This is exactly what I'm talking about, that, that we have created this idea and this experience that I don't fault anyone for wanting to, to go do that, especially if you're a teenager. It looks looks like a pretty great way to spend your next few years. Um, but, but that is toxic to people's economic incentives. It's toxic to the cultural expectations. And so just cutting that spending is, is a good unto itself, saying, look, you know, we're not going to be able to stop rich people from sending their kids to schools like this if they want to. Um, that, that is a feature of society that has always existed, going, you know, going back to, to prep schools and everything else. Um, but we can say that that's not the norm. And you know what? Actually, in-state tuition at your typical public university is still well under $10,000 a year. 
Um, and I have no problem with us saying we're going to provide a grant to anybody that covers half that cost. So now your out-of-pocket cost for that tuition is $5,000 a year. And, and that seems like something that we should make accessible to people. And if that's what you want to do, go do it. But guess what? With, with the literally more than $100 billion a year we'd save, if that's the only support we provided to the kids who want to go to college, we can actually create something else. Because part of the problem is having created this amusement park entitlement. The other part of the problem is that the alternative is just nothing. You go to college or you get nothing. And we owe it to young people to be investing just as much in other pathways. Uh, and I think the question is, okay, but but what does that look like? What what is the vessel for that? And and so what we've proposed, um, and and I think there's a lot of interest in on 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 Capitol Hill and and in in some states at this point, is is what we call a workforce training grant. And and the idea is actually to say, look, there there are some things that our higher ed system gets right. It's just funding the wrong kind of thing. So let's let's take the same concept and apply it to the idea of a trainee. Let's say, look, if you're if you're somebody who's going to be just like you could be a student on a campus, if you're going to be a trainee at a company, which which we can define, that's going to mean, you know, you're in a job that pays at least X and has, you know, a pathway to a full time job that pays at least Y. And you're spending at least a third of your time in actual training and the rest of the time working on the job. Um, if you are a trainee, there is a bucket of ten thousand dollars above your head that goes to your employer as long as you're in that trainee status. And that's going to make it an awful lot more attractive to employers to take on people in those roles and, and spend on them. If you're not a really big employer, you're probably going to turn around and ask a community college to provide the kind of training that you need instead of doing it yourself. But the huge shift here is that now you're the community college's customer, right? I think community colleges as they operate today are, are, are a, I would say, a, a national disgrace. I mean, they have completion rates, you know, in the teens in a lot of cases. Um, but the infrastructure we have, the, 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 those buildings that we have in, in every community or, or nearby across the country with people who, you know, with, with facilities and, and people who can provide instruction, that's an incredibly valuable resource to tap. Let's just make them accountable to employers to actually train people who the employers have on payroll to do what the employers need them to know how to do. And I think if we create that kind of structure, you know, initially it's going to be quite open-ended. Some things aren't going to go well at all, but we're going to have an opportunity to find out what are the other kinds of situations we can put people in, in training type relationships with public funding, that's going to get them on better pathways to well-paying jobs that that meet the needs of their labor market. Oh, it's, it's extremely well said. So another issue that's been in the news recently, and sorry for hopping around so quickly here just in our limited time, but the CHIPS Act, the semiconductor debate was very much in the news recently. Compass took out a position on the CHIPS Act that I think was certainly distinct from the Heritage Foundations and various other right of center organizations. For those who don't grasp just just how important semiconductors are and why our policy should be geared towards making semiconductors again and how that how those premises led to your support for some version of the chips i kind of just walk us through that particular public policy debate sure you know semiconductors are are in just about everything at this point right i mean the semiconductor really what you care about is the chip after we've etched some circuits onto the semiconductor and it provides the computing power 
for everything from you know your your toaster oven at at, <laughs> at one end to uh to an F thirty five at at the other end of the the latest artificial intelligence applications. And the U.S. has always been the leader in this. I mean, they were developed and invented here. It's Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because it made silicon. It used to actually make something besides dumb social media apps. <laughs> and, um, you know, all the original development was done here. Fairchild Semiconductor then begat Intel, which was the undisputed leader for decades. Um, you know, many people have heard of this idea of Moore's Law, which is that kind of the the size of transistors gets smaller, the computing power doubles um, on this reliable basis. Gordon Moore was one of the founders of Intel. I mean, look, <laughs> Intel and, and semiconductor progress were sort of synonymous for a very long time. And what has happened over the last 20 years or so uh, is the U.S. has just completely lost its, its technological leadership in semiconductors. Um, one piece of this is Intel just stopped investing the way they should. They... They do great work with their stock buybacks, but not nearly as much with, with pushing the cutting edge on the technology front. Um, but the other side is that other countries, particularly Taiwan and South Korea, um, pursued aggressive industrial policies of, of public funding and investment to build national champions to do exactly this. And so TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company in Taiwan, and Samsung in Korea have now become the undisputed leaders in in making high end chips to the to the point where a, a, an activist hedge fund um, recently took a position in Intel to consider pushing it to get out of the chip making business altogether wow. and just design chips and have TSMC make them. Um, they've they've backed off of that, but but that's sort of how far it had gotten. Um, so about I believe the list has about ninety percent of the most advanced chips now come from Taiwan. And that is, you know, first of all, just as an economic matter, this is a disaster when, you know, this is not T-shirts. A, a huge amount of the actual economic value is in the manufacturing process. Where the manufacturing process goes, the innovation follows, the venture capital follows. We are just no longer at the forefront of this kind of work. It's a huge national security problem, particularly when you're talking about Taiwan. Um, and so... Uh, you then have the final punchline, which is that the next frontier for all of this is China. China is now trying to replicate what Taiwan and, and South Korea did um, to, to bring as much of, of the technological advancement on, onto its shore. And so the question is, well, what, if anything, should the U.S. do about this, right? And so this is like such a wonderful illustration of why the kind of free market fundamentalism just doesn't work, right? There. If you go back to your kind of econ 101 trade theory, we're going to have comparative advantage and, you know, Scotland is going to specialize in wool and Portugal is going to specialize in wine and they'll both be better off trading with each other, right? It's like there is nothing about Taiwan or South Korea or China that gives it a natural comparative advantage right. in semiconductor manufacturing. Right. It, is, it is purely a function of state policy on one side versus no state policy on the other in an area where having domestic capacity has real value. And so your your only choices are either A, kind of stick your head in the sand and say, well, but my ideological fundamentalism says we shouldn't do anything. So I guess that just means we won't make semiconductors in America or, or B, do what Edmund Burke would have done and say, let's actually apply principles to the situation we have 
And that situation is one in which um, free trade is not synonymous with free markets. It's actually incompatible with free markets. If we want to have a healthy, well-functioning market here in America, we are going to have to either do something about this trade and say, no, you can't import from there. Uh, you have to make here. Or we're going to have to say we are going to invest just as heavily in supporting domestic manufacturing as other countries are. And so that was the thinking behind the CHIPS Act. Frankly, it's only sort of step one. It's not right. going to solve the problem by itself. But it was the, the first notable commitment to say we acknowledge this problem exists. We need to be in this game. Uh, and we are therefore going to start putting up the money to match what other countries are putting up. So. We're unfortunately running a little low on time here. I really wanted to kind of dive into the family policy stuff, get your thoughts on the Family Security Act 2.0 from Senator Romney and Senator Danes. But let's let's get you out of here on this particular question. As, as we sit here in 2022, we're coming up on, on the fall midterms. We got another presidential election in, in 2024. Are you optimistic about kind of the the broader state of the center rights approach to political economy and economics? Do you feel like the momentum is on our side or is there still a lot of work left to be done? What do you what do you think about that? Well, in the long run, I'm very optimistic because I think the the economic thinking really has shifted. I mean, you know, you mentioned we weren't in the same place as a lot of these other right of center groups on chips. But one of the really interesting things, if you look at like, okay, Heritage Foundation comes out and, and they say they're against chips, or you got a bunch of, you know, the Republican Study Committee in the House says they're against chips. The reason that they led with for saying this was a bad idea was not because free markets are better. It was actually that chips wasn't harsh enough, <laughs> that they were concerned that companies, so let's say we give Intel money to build a plant in Ohio. They wanted chips to say, you know what, Intel, once you do that, you can't make any other investments in China at all. And, and by the way, I think that would be great if we tell Intel they couldn't <laughs> make, make any other investments in China at all. Um, but it's really striking that that was the attitude, that we actually need to sort of decouple more aggressively and be harsher and be even more skeptical of trade and financial flows than is this bill. Um, and, and so... That's actually a very encouraging development. I think more broadly, if, if you kind of zoom out and look at where the debate is on a lot of these issues, you know, certainly on the trade question, there's there's very few people who I would say are still in, in positions of influence in, or, or power who are parroting the sort of um, what I would call fairly brain dead abstract um, approach that, that would have been very common a decade ago. Well, we'll have to bring you on back again soon to kind of tease this out a little more. But for now, Oren Cash, thank you so much for joining us this week. And thank you so much more generally for all the great work that you're doing. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So Orin Cass, from my perspective, has been one of the most important 
thinkers in this broader new rights space. I'm not even sure if Orrin would embrace the term new rights, really neither here nor there, but he's really been one of the most seminal thinkers in trying to shift the Overton window towards a more empirical, practical, working class. You know, you hear this phrase that, that you know, Republican K Street lobbyists throw out there a lot, the so-called multiracial working class coalition, which for what it's worth does seem to be materializing to one extent or another. Folks like Orrin have been right at the tip of the spear of that. They have been at the focal point of kind of laying the intellectual seeds for that. So what a thrill to kind of bring him on here. Cannot encourage you guys more to check out his organization, American Compass. They really put out terrific work. You know, I I was doing an event this past weekend, actually, here in Miami, where I live. It was the Florida Young Republicans and Miami Young Republicans annual conference. And I was doing a panel with my buddy, Dave Raboy. And the name of this panel was quote unquote, the new right, what time is it in America? And I was thinking that I was going to talk about something else, but I ended up just going on this rant about industrial policy and trade and semiconductors, a lot of this stuff that we were talking about there, manufacturing, you know, this the deracinization of the of the American Rust Belt and escalating fentanyl overdoses, which is very hard to divorce from the fact that all these jobs have been shipped overseas. But, you know, thinking there to what Oren was saying about chips. I mean, think about this, guys. Would you hear from him? Over 90% of the world's advanced semiconductors produced by one company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. You know, if we go back to our conversation with Jack Posobiec a few weeks ago, there is a very, very real chance that China is going to go marching into Taiwan, that Xi Jinping is going to send the People's Liberation Army into Taipei. Well, what the hell does that mean? For American national security, what the hell does that mean for our F-35 fighter jets that rely upon these chips that are being built halfway around the world? And, you know, the rant that I went on this past weekend at the Florida Young Republicans Conference to the crowd there is basically, who the hell thought this was a good idea? I mean, seriously, like, who the hell in Washington, D.C. public policy circles thought that would be a good idea to offshore effectively entire industries? I mean, hold aside kind of the offshoring of kind of bread and butter, old school kind of blue collar manufacturing that has just totally devastated states like Ohio and Michigan. Who the hell thought it would be a good idea to offshore semiconductor advanced chip making of this magnitude? Our arts geopolitical foe is thinking every day of marching into Taipei and they would seize all of the intellectual property, of course, of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Where does that leave our military? Where does that leave our F-35? Hold this side, your freaking iPhone or your Apple MacBook. Where does that leave the American national interest? And the question obviously answers itself. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We'll be back with another great episode next week. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.